Namaskaram. Um, of late, I've been answering questions um, in in these meetings. Um, I I decided to put the the talks I was giving on Akshamlai on hold for the time being, because um, there are many other translations that I want to uh, post on my blog and uh, to finalize and post on my blog, so that all my my translations of all. Bhagavan's original uh, writings are available um, because these are things that I'm often asked for. Once I complete that, which may take a few months, then I will return to doing um, uh, going over verse of Akshamlai at least uh, uh, one a month. But that's only after I've completed all the posted all the translations um, on my blog. Um, so what I've been doing of late is um, answering questions um, that I'm asked on um, the YouTube channel, um, on the videos on the YouTube channel. Many questions come. I don't have time to answer all of them, so I usually select one. And often I select ones that are most relevant to the practice of self-investigation because this is the most important thing. However, I've just um, noticed before we started, I've received an email um, forwarded by um, from uh, from the foundation by uh, someone who said they weren't able to ask, ask their question. So I think I will um, answer this question first. It, um, I, I, I will read the whole question and then... Um, uh, then I will um, I, I, I will answer it. So the question is: I am very confused about prarabdha. As I understand it, prarabdha is for ego. It is ego that creates the world and everything in it. And when I, as a person, am real, the world and God are also real. But my real nature is God. God allotted the prarabdha that I have to experience in this lifetime. So I myself, as my real nature, gave my own destiny to myself, question mark. Um, but God has nothing to do with the world but came into existence together with ego. So why does he decide what I have to experience in my life? The world does not really exist. I do not really exist. But God is still concerned about my spiritual development. He acknowledges the existence of ego, birth, death, and karma by doing so? Question mark. Why does God interfere with something that is just an appearance? I really don't understand. I, as ego, am dreaming. And what happens in the dream is predetermined? Question mark. You say nothing can happen that uh, isn't meant to happen. So if I do things under the sway of my Bishaya Vasanas, Agamya, that is meant to happen, question mark, then everything is prarabdha. I know that we cannot and we need not know what prarab what is our prarabdha or what we are doing under the sway of our vasanas, and that is not troubling me. What troubles me is that I want to undo myself of this life as this person, but I still do not trust God, that, that God will take care of that person. I do not understand that concept. 
And the more I think about it, the more confused I get. Does the idea of prarabdha exist only to help us let go of ego? Um, so that is the question. Uh, there are quite a number of questions here. Uh, regarding the final question, does the idea of prarabdha exist only to help us let go of ego? That is, Bhagavan taught us the law of karma. And the reason he taught, he, this law of karma is true, uh, is, is true insofar as ego is true. That is, the, the law of karma uh, is only for ego, and it, it partakes of the seeming reality of ego. Ultimately, karma is not real. What is real is only being. That is what we are seeking. We are seeking to know who am I. So what we are investigating is our being, because being alone is real. Doing is unreal. So karma, do, karma means doing. So karma is unreal. But it, though it is unreal, it, so long as we rise as ego, karma uh, seems to be real. It is as real as ego. So, but... Uh, the reason why Bhagavan taught us this law of karma is because if we understand this correctly, it is a great aid to us in following this path, as I will explain as I go on to answer each part of the question. Um, so I'll go through the question bit by bit just to answer it. Um, I, as I understand it, prarabdha is for ego, yes. All karma is only for ego. Ego is the doer of the agamya and the experiencer of the fruit of agamya. So prarabdha is the fruit of the agamya. So uh, ego is both the doer and the experiencer. As Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Uludhunapadu, if oneself is the doer uh, of, of action, um, one will, sorry, um, uh, if we if we are the doer of action, uh, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. If we know ourselves by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end. This is liberation which is eternal. So why uh, why does he say if why does he say if we investigate uh, if we know ourselves by investigating who is the doer of action? What he means by that is if we know what we actually are by investigating who is the doer of action, what we actually are is not the doer of action. The doer of action is ego. But by investigating ego, we, we, uh, we, um, we come to know its underlying reality. Just like if you, if you see what seems to be a snake, if you look at it very carefully, you will see that it is just a rope. Um, not a snake at all. Likewise, if we look, if we attend to ego very closely, we will see that what it actually is, is just pure awareness, is, is not ego at all. Since the current, the doer of karma and the experience of the fruit of karma is only ego, when ego is uh, annihilated, when we know ourselves as we actually are, ego will thereby be annihilated. So that is what Bhagavan means by doership will depart, because e doership and experiencership are both the nature of ego. So long as there is, we rise as ego, we identify ourselves with a bundle of five sheaves. 
that and the instruments of action of this bundle of five sheaves are um, the the body, the speech, and the mind. So by these three instruments, we do actions. So uh, we we seem to be the doer of action because of our identification with these five sheaves. So. Um, and because we do, we experience ourselves as a doer of actions, we also have to experience the fruit of those actions. But when we know ourselves as we actually are, ego will thereby be annihilated. So doership and experiencership will come to an end. Without a doer, there cannot be any agamya. Without an experiencer, there cannot be any fruit of agamya. So all three karmas, that means Agamya, Sanchitta, and Prarabdha all come to an end. Agamya is the actions that we do under the sway of our bhasanas. In other words, the actions we do according to our own will. These are the actions that bear fruit. When we do an action, the fruit is not in our hands. The fruit is in the hands of God. It is God alone who determines what is the appropriate fruit for each action and when, where, and how we should experience that fruit. So if we do an action, we do not experience the fruit of that action immediately. That The fruit of that action gets stored in what is called sanchitta, which is, uh, sanchitta literally means a heap or pile. So that's the store of all the fruits of past karmas, but we haven't yet experienced. Prarabdha is a selection of both fruit, but are allotted for us to experience in this lifetime. It is God who allots this prarabdha, who selects the, which fruit are appropriate for us to experience in this lifetime. Um, so, yes, prarabdha is for ego, is only for ego. All karma is only for ego. Um, and then the, 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 the question goes on, it is ego that creates the world and everything in it. Yes, by rising as ego, all this, this entire world is a dream. The dreamer of this world is ego. So when, when we dream, we create the dream world, but we do not experience ourselves as the creator of the dream world because we mistake ourselves to be a person within that dream world. So instead of experiencing ourselves as the creator, we experience ourselves as a creature, a person in the dream. That's why as a person in the dream, we seem to have no control over the dream because we, though we are the creator of the dream, we, are, uh, we have identified ourselves with just one among uh, uh, things that we created, namely a person in that dream. Um, and the question goes on, and when I as a person am real, the world and God are also real. Um, well, we are not real. We seem to be real. When, when That is, we means ego is not real. And ego is what takes itself to be a person. So neither ego nor the person we take ourselves to be are real. However, though they are not real, they seem to be real. And because they seem to be real, the world and God also seem to be real. Here, when we talk about God in relation to, um, uh, that is, when we see God as something other than ourselves, that God is um, 
it's not God as he really is, but God as he seems to be from a perspective of ego, because God is not, God is the, un, the real nature of God is our own real nature. That is the underlying reality. But when we rise as ego, we limit ourselves as a person, we see a world outside, and our own real nature, the, 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 the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving nature of our real nature, we see as a God who is some, something other than ourselves. So these all seem to be real, but they are not real. They seem to be real only so long as we rise as ego. Um, and just one clarification here. In Bhagavan's teachings, when Bhagavan talks about real and unreal, what does he mean by these terms? Real in this context means what actually exists. Unreal what means what does not actually exist, even though it may seem to exist. So ego, a world, and God all seem to exist, but do not actually exist. What actually exists is the underlying reality of ego, which is pure awareness, which is the true nature of God, God as he actually is. So we need to distinguish between God as he appears to be from the perspective of ego and God as he actually is. God as he actually is, is what we actually are. Uh, but when we rise as ego, God seems to be something other than ourselves. The question then goes on, but my real nature is God. Uh, God allotted the prarabdha I have to experience in this lifetime. So I myself, as my real nature, gave my own destiny to myself, question mark, this is a very, very subtle uh, matter that we have to understand here. That is, yes, God is our real nature. What, the nature of God, our own real nature, is pure being. So God does not actually do anything. But God is not only pure being, he is also pure love. He is infinite love because the very nature of of God is, well, the nature of any sentient being is to be aware, is to love itself. As Bhagavan says in the, 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 uh, in the, at the start of the first paragraph of Nana, since all living beings, all jivas, uh, want to be happy always without misery, um, since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. So in that second clause, he says, we all have greatest love for ourselves. Why is that? Because love is our real nature. Our, our real nature is one and indivisible. So infinite love for ourselves, as we actually are, is our real nature. That is reflected in, in jiva, in the ego, as love for myself as this person. Um, so since God is our own real nature, God is infinite love. That is that his very nature is infinite love. But in the view of God as he actually is, there are no others. So God does not see us as anything other than himself. So God knows us as his own reality, as himself, and therefore he loves us as himself. And literally, he loves us as himself because he doesn't see us as anything other than himself. So God is infinite love. 
that infinite love that is God is what we experience as grace. So grace does not do anything, but everything happens by its power. So in the fifteenth um, paragraph of Nana, of Who Am I, Bhagavan explains that all the five um, panchakriti, the panchakriti, the five divine functions, that is creation, sustenance, that means the creation of the world, sustenance of the world, the dissolution of the world, the um, um, tirodana, that's the veiling, the, the, the veiling power of ignorance, and grace. All these happen by the special nature of the, um, merely by the special, by the mere special nature of uh, the presence of God. So, the presence of God means his being. He doesn't actually do anything, but just by being as he is, everything happens as it is meant to happen. Why does it happen as it's meant to happen? Because he is infinite love, and that love seems to us to be doing all this, but it's not it's doing it without actually doing anything. It's doing it just by being as it is. And of course, God and his grace are not two different things. Grace is the very nature of God. Grace is the infinite love that is God, the infinite love that God has for all of us as himself. So when we try to understand this by our mind, obviously we can't understand it adequately because our minds are finite and God and his grace are infinite. So we, are, we, are, we, we cannot with our mind adequately understand this, but at least we can grasp certain principles. But though God is not doing everything, everything is being done by his, by his mere presence because he is infinite love. So everything is happening as it should because God is infinite love. Um, so. Uh, the question, so I myself, as my real nature, give my own destiny to myself. Uh, that is true in a sense. That is, God is our own real nature. God is infinite love. Because he is infinite love, he doesn't want to just, he doesn't want to cheat us with the mere pleasures of life. He wants to restore us to, to our real nature, because our real nature is infinite happiness. So God... God wants nothing less for us than infinite happiness. So the prarabdha is given to us in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development, that is, to our progressing towards the stage where we are willing to surrender ourselves completely and thereby merge back in our real nature, which is infinite happiness. So all this is happening by God, by grace, I mean, these are all words. We we can't adequately say these things. But so long as we rise as ego, God seems to be other than ourselves, even though he is actually our own real nature. God seems to be doing so many things, even though he's actually just being. So everything is happening by the special nature. That is what Bhagavan says in that paragraph of Nana, that 15th paragraph, Isan Sanidana Visesha Matrata, by the by the merely by by the mere special nature of the presence of God. That special nature of the presence of God is infinite love. 
which is what he is, which we experience as grace. Um, and then the, the question goes on, but God has nothing to do with the world but came into existence together with ego. God has everything to do with the world because God is the underlying reality. God is the underlying reality of both ego and world. And that underlying reality is infinite love. So that infinite love is um, is shaping this world in such a this world means everything that we experience in this life. It, it, it is shaping it in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development, our progress in the spiritual path. Um, so, so why does he decide what I have to experience in my life? Because of because he is infinite love, he decides it. He decides it without deciding anything. Just by being as he is, he decides everything. He decides what is best for us because he loves us as himself. Um, and then the question goes on: The world does not really exist. I do not really exist. But God is still concerned about my spiritual development. That is, God does not see us as the person we seem to be. God sees us as we actually are, which is as himself. So he has infinite love for us as himself. But because we see ourselves as this person, we see that love that God has for us working in the form of grace, which is shaping our destiny, shaping our prarabdha. Um, and then the question goes on. He acknowledges the existence of ego, birth, death, karma, and so on. So long as it seems to us that God is something other than ourself, that God who seems to be other than ourself also seems to acknowledge the existence of ego, birth, death, and everything. But what God actually experiences is the underlying reality of all these things. So what we experience as all this multiplicity, ego, birth, death, karma, and so on, is what God experiences as his own being. So uh, God experiences everything that we experience, but he does not experience it as we experience it. He experiences it all, all as infinite being, infinite awareness, infinite happiness, infinite love, because that is what all this is. It's we who make the mistake of seeing all these as, as all these multiplicity with all its changes of birth and death and karma and so on. Um, so uh, if we take God to be something other than ourselves, we have to acknowledge that he sees all these things as we see them. But the truth is, he sees all these things as they actually are, which is as himself, the one and only reality, the one and only thing that actually exists. Why does God interfere with something that is just an appearance? Yes, all this is just an appearance, but to us it seems very real. Because it seems real, we are suffering. We are, though this is all just an appearance, we are, re we are really suffering in this appearance. So because he is infinite love, he, he wants what is best for us. And because he wants what is best for us, it seems to us that he is interfering. 
interfering means graciously interfering he's he's shaping all that we are experiencing all to what we are to experience in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development um the, the, the question said i don't i really don't understand we cannot understand these things adequately so long as we are trying to understand by the mind we can understand to some extent but we cannot understand perfectly because ultimately all there is to understand is one there, there is all this multiplicity none of this is real it's all maya but um so long as we're experiencing all this maya it all seems to be coherent it all seems to have its own internal logic but it is all um but the force that is behind all of this is the infinite love that is that we that is God Himself and that we experience as His grace. And then the person goes. The question goes on: I, as ego and dreaming, and what happens in the dream is predetermined. Yes. Um, and then the question continues: You say nothing can happen that isn't meant to happen. Yes, nothing can happen that isn't meant to happen. That means nothing. Here we need to hear here a subtle distinction is necessary. I'll just continue reading the question and then point out this. So if I do things under the sway of my Vishaya Vasanas, Agamya, that is still meant to happen. No. Here we need to distinguish what happens. We we need to distinguish what happens to us from what happens by us. What happens to us. In other words, what we are given to experience is the fruit of our past karmas, karmas that we've done in previous life, but have been selected for us to experience as our destiny or prarabdha in this lifetime. Agamya is not what happens to us, but what happens by us. That is, we. it, it is under the sway of our vasanas, under the sway of our will, but we are doing things. So these we these are distinct from prarabdha what is happening to us so prarabdha determines all that we are to experience our will in the form of vasanas determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience what we are what we are to experience is predetermined however it may be our destiny, for example, to be very, very poor, all, all our life to be poor. But just because it's our destiny to be poor doesn't stop us wanting to be rich. It doesn't stop us trying to be rich. So we have the freedom to want to be rich, and we have the freedom to try to be rich. We have no freedom to be rich unless it is our destiny. And if it is our destiny to be rich and to be rich throughout our life, even if we give away all the money we have, all the wealth we have, more wealth will come to us because it is destined for us to always have wealth. So however much we give away, it will come back to us in some form or other. So what is what is destined to happen to us is prarabdha. What what happens by us, that is what we what we desire and what we try to achieve, that uh, according uh, under the sway of our basanas, that is agamya. That is uh, so agamya is not prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of past agamya. 
if if all our actions were prarabdha, if they were all predetermined, then they wouldn't be our actions. They'd be actions we are made to do by God. So then God should experience the fruit of those actions. Why should we experience the fruit of actions we are made to do? We experience the fruit of our past agamya because agamya is the action we do under the sway of our own will. So there is no incompatibility between um, uh, will and predetermination. They are both compatible because our will cannot change what is predetermined, and what is predetermined cannot change our will. They, these are two distinct spheres, two, two distinct realms. So our will determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. Prarabdha determines what we are actually to experience. So when it is said, but nothing nothing can happen that isn't meant to happen. That means nothing can happen to us that isn't meant to uh, to to happen to us. In other words, nothing we nothing nothing can happen that isn't given to us to experience to happen. But that doesn't prevent us wanting to experience other things and trying to experience other things. Our want, our trying to experience other things under the sway of our bhasanas is what is called agamya. That is the, the what that those the agamya is the karma but, but yields fruit. And the fruit is what we experience in some later life as prarabdha. Um, and then the, the question goes on, I know that we cannot and we need not know what our prarabdha is or what we are doing under the sway of our vasanas, and that is not troubling me. Yes, that is correct. What troubles me is that I want to undo myself of this life as a person, but I still do not trust that God will take care of that person. Well, if you really want to undo yourself of this life as a person. In other words, if you want to separate yourself from this person, why are you so concerned about whether God will take care of this person or not? We are still concerned about this person because of our identification with this person. We can be sure the life of this person, that everything that is to happen to this person is already determined by prarabdha. So God will take care of it. If we are unfortunate not to trust God, that is a great loss. But if we read Bhagavan's teachings carefully and think about it carefully, he, Bhagavan has assured us in so many ways that God will take care of everything. He says in the, for example, in the um, in the thirteenth paragraph of Nana, he says, um, "I'll first read the." In the 12th paragraph, Bhagavan says, God and Guru are in truth not different. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, so those who have been caught in the look of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. What he means here by the look of Guru's grace, when we come under the sway of his grace, that is, when we are drawn to Guru, uh, when when we are attracted to Guru, we've come under the, the we've been caught in the look of His grace. So we will surely be saved by Him and never forsaken. 
Nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path Guru has shown. That is, Bhagavan will do everything for us, but we have to, that is, His grace is taking care of everything. He's taking care both of our outward life and our inward life, our spiritual life, our, our spiritual development. But we need to cooperate with grace by yielding ourselves to it. How we yield ourselves to it is by following the path that he has shown us. In other words, by turning our attention within and thereby sinking back into the heart, subsiding back into the heart by being self-attentive. That's the 12th paragraph. And then in the 13th paragraph, he defines what is giving, in the first sentence, he defines what is self-surrender. What, what does it mean to give ourselves to God? He says, being Atmanishta Paran, Atmanishta Paran is a term that means one who is firmly fixed as oneself. That implies being as we actually are. Um, so how can we be as we actually are? He, the, he, he, in, he, there's an adverbial clause that explains this. Giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except Atmachintana, thought of oneself. Um, um, so that is how we remain as Atmanishtaparam. The implication there when he says not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than thought of oneself, Atmachintana implies self-attentiveness. What that implies is being so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to a, not, not even the slightest room to the rising of any other thought. That is, thoughts can rise only if we attend to them. If we, are, if we attend to ourselves so keenly that there's no room for any other thoughts to arise, we, we thereby subside and merge back into our source and remain as we are. That is giving ourselves to God. So the implication of this sentence is that the means by which we can surrender ourselves to God is by holding to self onto self-attentiveness or atmachintana so firmly that we give no room to rising of any other thoughts. By doing so, we subside back into our own real nature and remain as we actually are, and that is giving ourselves to God. So in this first sentence, he said we should not give even the slightest room to the rising of any thoughts. Many people, when they hear this, they'll think, oh, but I have so many responsibilities. I've got, uh, I've got a family, I've got a uh, wife or husband, I've got children, I've got to take care of them, I've got an important job I have to do, I have to, uh, I, have to, um, I have to do my work properly and everything. How can I remain without thinking? Bhagavan gives us an assurance in the, um, uh, in the next sentence. He says, even though one places whatever amount of burden upon God, that entire amount he will bear. So if we give ourselves wholly to God, we are thereby surrendering our mind, speech, and body to him. So we, we even the responsibility of thinking for us, we are leaving to God. Since God has already allotted the prarabdha that we are to that, is, that we are to experience, He will make us do whatever actions are necessary for us to do in order for our 
Prarabdha to unfold. When I say he will make us do, he will make our mind, speech, and body do. Because it's not actually us who are doing, it's the mind, speech, and body of it are doing. If we if we surrender ourselves to him, we separate ourselves from this mind, speech, and body, which will be made to do whatever actions are necessary. So um even the burden of thinking, of talking, of doing all these, this entire burden, this entire burden we can surrender to God, He will take care of all of it. And then He goes on to, to explain this more in the next sentence. He says, Since one Parameshwara Shakti, that's Parameshwara, Ishwara means, uh, ruling, or it also means God, because God is the ruler of the universe. So Parama Ishwara Shakti means either the supreme ruling power or the power of God. It amounts to the same because God's power is the supreme ruling power, the power that rules everything. So since one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Kariyas, instead of we also yielding to it, why to be perpetually thinking, it is necessary to do like this, it is necessary to do like that. Here when he said that Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Kariyas, what he means by Kariyas is whatever needs or ought to be done or to happen. So everything that is to happen, according to Prarabdha, he is making it happen. And whatever we need to do in order to facilitate that, or, or you know, in order to enable that prarabdha to happen, he will make us do that. So he's right. Everything that is meant to happen, he is making it happen. That doesn't mean he's responsible for all that we do according to our will. All that is meant to happen, all that he has a lot, all the, the prarabdha is in he is entirely in his hands. He is. He will make it happen as it's meant to happen. So, when such is the case, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to God, be perpetually thinking it's necessary to do like this? It's necessary to do like that. That is, we are taking this burden on our head. We are saying, "I need to do this. I need to do that. I have a family. I have a wife. I have a husband. I have elderly parents. I have small children. I have all these responsibilities." We are. We. He. He is asking us to surrender all these burdens to him. We want to take all these burdens. We want him to surrender these burdens to us. How foolish we are! Whether we. Whether we take these burden, this burden on our head or not, he is carrying all of it. So we can very happily surrender this entire burden of, do, of doing to him. Let him take care of everything. Whatever actions need to be done by our mind, by our speech, and our body, in order for the prarabdha to unfold, he will make them do. So let us just surrender it to him. And then he gives, to illustrate this, he uh, ends by giving a very apt analogy, very beautiful analogy. Though we know that the train is going, bearing all the burdens, why should we, who go traveling in it, instead of remaining happily, leaving our small luggage placed on the train, suffer carrying that luggage on our head. That is, we, the whole burden of our life 
we can hand over to God. He will take care of everything. He is, whether we surrender to him or not, he is taking care of everything. Things are going to happen as they're meant to happen, whether we surrender to him or not. So why should we carry the burden on our head? Why don't we just surrender? Things are going to happen. The train is going to carry all the luggage, whether we carry it on our head or put it aside. So why should we suffer unnecessarily by taking all these things on our head instead of just putting it, surrendering to him and living our life happily. So the purpose of the law of karma that Bhagavan has taught us is to put, is to, is to give us that confidence that God is taking care of everything and that we can surrender everything to him. So when this person who asked the question says, but I still do not trust that God will take care of that person, that that lack of trust is because of lack of a clear understanding of what Bhagavan has taught us about this law of karma. So if we understand this law of karma correctly, it is a great burden of our head. We need not carry the burden of our life on our head. God is taking care of everything. He's taking care of, of our life down to the minutest detail. So if we take this burden on our head, we are suffering unnecessarily. So we cannot blame God for the suffering we are undergoing. We are causing our own suffering by taking this burden on our head. Let us leave it to him. He knows what is best. Let him shape our life in any way we want. So um, <clears throat> then, but, so the person goes on, I do not understand that concept. And the more I think of it, the more confused I get. That is, we, if we try and understand this with our own finite intellect, we will get ourselves into a confusion. But if we think, if we read what Bhagavan has taught us and think carefully about it, and we will, and most importantly, if we try to put it into practice, because by trying to put this into practice, we when we the practice Bhagavan has taught us is turning our attention within towards our own being. Our own being, I am, is the is the light of pure awareness. And that light of pure awareness is the light by which we know everything else. So the more we turn our attention back towards that light of pure awareness that is always shining within us as our own being, I am the greater will be the clarity we experience. That is, we, by turning our attention inwards, we are, so to speak, bathing in the, in the ocean of clarity that is our own being. So by bathing in that ocean, we are our mind is being purified and clarified. And in that clarity, the truth of all that the Bhagavan says will be very, very clear. We will have no doubt but what Bhagavan has said when he says that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all karyas, we will have no doubt that that is so. So we will happily surrender our mind, speech and body to him, knowing that he will take care of everything. So I hope this adequately answers uh, this set of questions. Um, and the other questions that I was going to answer today, I will keep for later in this month. Uh, um, so does anyone have any uh, questions either on this or in any, any other aspect of Bhagavan's teachings?
There was a, a question uh, from Lena, if she's... Lena, did you want to ask a question? Uh, I will. How do I... Am I on mute? Can you hear me? Yes, we can yes. hear you. Yes. You just need to... Yeah. Okay. Uh, my question is a bit self-referential, but maybe it's a bit bigger. It's that I'm at the moment in the process of writing a memoir of how the partition of India impacted and fragmented my family. But whenever I think about my father, I have this huge surge of emotion, grief, yearning, and then I get overwhelmed. So I'm sort of feeling, should I be doing this? Why is this happening? And since the purpose of this is to kind of, you know, heal and get a kind of perspective and a, and a peace. I'm drowning a bit, so I just wondered if you had any... If it is your destiny to write this memoir, you cannot avoid it. If it is not your destiny, however much you try, it's not going to happen. So, let things take their own course. If we are following Bhagavan's path, we are trying to detach ourselves from the person we seem to be. So we all, each one of us, has a certain identity. That is, when we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as I am this person. And this person has a certain story, comes from a certain background, there's a certain back history and everything, and we have relatives and all these things. This is all part of our identity. But if we if we aspire to follow Bhagavan's path, our aim is to separate ourselves from this, this, this identity, that is to step back, to cease identifying ourselves as this person. So long as we allow our mind to go outwards, we are identified with this person. Because it is only from the perspective of this person we take ourselves to be, Lena or Michael or whoever it happens to be, from this perspective, we are seeing everything else. So, from the perspective of Lena, Lena has a certain back history. She, she has, you, you, you remember your father, you remember things of your past, you're trying to get things off your chest. But are you Lena? If it is Lena's destiny to do all these things, let Lena do it. Your task is to separate yourself from Lena by holding on to your own being. That is, it is Lena that, that the father you remember is the father of Lena. The events that you are writing about are events that happened to the family of Lena. But if you want to follow Bhagavan's path, let Lena's life go on. Let her, if Lena is destined to write this memoir, let her write this memoir. But you need to separate yourself. You need to separate yourself from this false identity, I am Lena. What you actually are is only I am, not I am Lena. So, in order to separate ourselves from this false identity, we need to hold on to I am alone. That is, we need to hold on to our being. By holding on to our be being, we are thereby separating ourselves from this identity because this identity, this person we take ourselves to be, is not holding on to us. 
It is we who are holding on to this person. It is we who say, I am Lena, I am Michael, I am whoever. So the, the culprit is ourself as ego. Lena is, is a person. The, the person is actually, as Bhagavan has made clear, is Jada. It is the person seems to be sentient because we identify ourselves as I am this person. So our aim is to separate ourselves from the person we take ourselves to be. We can separate ourselves from this person only by holding on to I am. Now our experience of ourselves is I am Lena, I am Michael, I am whoever. What is real is only I am. So if we hold on to I am, to the extent to which we hold on to I am, we are thereby letting go of this identity. Since this identity is not holding us, the identity will slip off and I am alone will remain. And then we will discover our real father. Our real father is our being, is I am. That is, I am is the source from which we have all come from which everything has come. So our real father and mother, our source, our God, every, our guru, everything is that which is shining in our heart as I am. That is Bhagavan. That is our mother and father. That is our everything. That is Mata, guru, uh, Mata Peter Guru Devam. It is, uh, it is uh, mother, father, go, guru and God. That which is shining in our heart as I am, that alone is real. That's what we should be holding on to. Then we will not be disturbed by the actions that this person is doing. If it is Lena's destiny to write this memoir, Lena will write this memoir. But you need to separate yourself from the identification with Lena by holding on to what you actually are, which is I am. Is that a helpful answer? Yes, it, it, it's a helpful answer because, in a way, it's all the emotion and that she drowns in. That's Lena. Yeah, yeah. There's, exactly. There is a sense I get sometimes when I'm writing that the writer, because the writer is separate and is observing and it's not, you know, that there's a bit of a different. There's a difference there. There's something else there. That is, you are separate. Mm. You are now identifying yourself with the writer. But what is separate? The writer is Lena. But you are something separate from that. And that's a, that I can only experience, can't I? And You cannot but experience that. The one thing that we always experience is I am. Lena comes and goes. You experience yourself as I am Lena in waking and dream. But in sleep, do you experience yourself as I am Lena? You experience yourself only as I am. So I am is the one continuity, the, the one thing that is shiny always. But in waking and dream, we make this mistake of identifying ourselves with an appearance.
difficult. It is. It seems difficult to us. Why? Because we are not willing to let go. Because we are so strongly identified with this person we take ourselves to be. If we were willing to let go of this false identity, there is nothing. What can be easier than attending to our own being? The one thing that is always clearly shining, I am. What can be easier than attending to that? Other things are constantly changing. So if we try to attend to other things, they're slipping past us. We can't really hold on to anything because things are, everything is changing. But the one thing that is unchanging, the one thing that is achala, is that I am. So that is what we need to hold on to. But to hold on to that, we need to be willing to let go of everything else. We must have great love just to be as we actually are. But difficulty arises only because of our lack of willingness. So this emotion is just attachment. All, all emotion comes from attachment, yes. But let the emotion be there. The emotion is for Lena. You need to separate yourself from Lena. If you let, separate yourself from Lena, the emotion may be, still be there, but it will no longer be my emotion. In, it, what Bhagavan actually is, is that pure awareness I am. But in our view, he seems to be that person who lived for 54 years in Tiruvannamalai. That person also sometimes showed emotion. Sometimes when people came and told their their um about their bereavement or some tragedies in their life, Bhagavan will be moved to tears listening to them. So the emotion is there, but he's not attached to that. He is the underlying ground. He's ever detached. But being the infinite love that he is, as a person, he seems to be moved by our he, he he's a mirror that reflects our emotions. Yeah. But the mirror is ever unaffected by what it is reflecting. It's difficult sometimes to understand these things because one's understanding it with that transitory self or yeah 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 that is why the key to understanding all these things the key to understanding bhagavan's teachings is putting them into practice because as i was saying earlier to the extent to which we turn our attention within we are so to speak bathing ourselves in that clarity so all bhagavan's teachings become clearer and clearer to us more alive more real to us and more blindingly obvious to us to the extent to which we put them into practice. And the more we put them into practice, the more we, more deeply we will understand his teaching, the more, the, the deeper layers of meaning and implication we will be able to see in his teachings. What we were not able to see before, we will be able to see, but, but only to the extent to which we go within in the practice of self-investigation.
That is why this practice is so important. We can't get clarity just by reading or just by thinking about it. We, we get some clarity by reading, we get more clarity by thinking about it. But the real deep clarity that is required can come only by practice, by turning our attention within to the source of all light, that which is ever shining as our own being. But how do we do that? Because the mind always comes in and... The, the mind, the nature of the mind is to go outwards. If we, but we, our nature is not to go outwards. So by trying to turn our mind back within, we are, we are renouncing our mind nature and restoring our real nature, which is just being. It, it may seem difficult, but it seems difficult only because of our lack of willingness. If we are willing to surrender ourselves, there's nothing easier than turning our attention within. Ayayati Sulapam Bhagavan sings. It's so, so easy. It's extremely easy. Thank you. Well, all thanks to Bhagavan because this is just this is what Bhagavan has this is the very simple and beautiful path that Bhagavan has shown us. How we can hear and now detach ourselves from all these things if we are willing to do so, if we have the love to do so. And that willingness and love is given by his grace. But his grace gives us that willingness, we have to build on that. We have to nurture that that love to turn within by constant practice. When you when one gets this sense of people you love, who are no more. And if they're, I don't know how to explain it. Is that just attachment or is it, you know, you get a sense of. So long as you are attached to Lena, so long as you are attached to Lena as I, so long as you take Lena to be I, you will naturally have attachment to all, all these, uh, to all other people. But attachment is not love. If you want to truly love, to, to experience true love for your parents, for your children, for your husband or whatever, that true love can be experienced only to the extent to which we are detached. But pure love is a love that shines in the state of perfect detachment. So with pure love can be found only in our own heart by detaching ourselves from this false identity. That's why Bhagavan was an infinite ocean of love, because he had no attachment. So he loved all equally, because he loved all as himself. Because he didn't see us as, as the person that we see ourselves to be. He saw us as we actually are, so he loved us as we actually are. 
Thank you. All right. Shalini, are there any more questions? Yes, there are more questions. Um, I just had one sort of a comment, which might be helpful. I'm not sure if it will be, but um, we've talked about this before. Um, I think one of the problems that everyone finds is that, I think it's in a way, as Nina said that, but I mean, what is this experience of, of the I am, you know, that we always are? And you know, it's like, there's nothing to hold on to, uh, but there is a lot of these objects and attachments to hold on to. So that's something kind of concrete and the mind going towards that. So what is the I am? And I think we've spoken about this before that, um, as you said, that in sleep, uh, it, it is the I am which is there, uh, which we mm. sometimes take to be just darkness or whatever. Mm. But if one can be a little aware when waking up or immediately, like even in moments when there's confusion, just remember in a way, uh, just sort of recall. Of course, you cannot recall sleep, but uh, if you just allow yourself to merge into, you know, that uh, sense of whatever it was uh, when I was sleeping, perhaps that is a bit helpful because that is a sort of a to the mind being able to sort of turn its attention uh, I'm not sure but uh, perhaps yes that, that, that is for our manana for our understanding ref reflecting on our experience in sleep is very useful but for the actual practice what is clearer than this shining of our own being that is the one the light that illumines our mind but, but it's ever shining within us our being is so so clear our, our being seems to be something difficult to catch hold of because we have allowed ourselves to become habituated to constantly attending to objects but if we think carefully about what Bhagavan has taught us and try to put it into practice the deeper we go in the practice, the more blindingly obvious it becomes. What is there that is clearer than this light of our own being? It, everything else is passing, all these, all objects, all phenomena, these are fleeting appearances. Even the identity, everything that we take ourselves to be, is just a fleeting appearance. But one thing that is real, one thing that is constant, is our own being, which is the light of pure awareness. So we, we to, to understand how to put Bhagavan's teachings into practice, we need to understand what he is talking about. When he, um, we, the question I was planning to answer today was a question about um, whether, whether this is the I am or whether that is the I am. The I am is not something that comes and goes. It, even to say the I am objectifies it. I am, it, it, what I am means is I exist. So it is a term that refers to the existence of ourself. The existence of ourself is something that is so clear. It's obviously not an object. It's not something that we can um, we can point out and say this is my, this is my existence. No, anything that can be pointed out is something other than ourself. But the if we if we take a little time to think about this and to reflect on our own experience of our own being, it is so, so, so clear. 
The problem is, once, once we recognize how clear it is, the problem is that we then come up against the real problem in this path, our lack of willingness, because we are still more interested in going outwards. We are still not willing to let go of all these other things. So it, uh, though we know it's very easy to attend to ourselves, we, we are allowing ourselves again and again and again to be carried away by other things. The only way to succeed in this path is however many times our attention goes away towards other things under the sway of its vasana to bring it back to that which is ever shining within us. That light of pure awareness, that light of pure being. So, so what would be, um, what was the next question? Yeah, the question is, um, Bhagwan often used analogies and images to make it clear to us certain ideas, like the analogy of the snake, the golden items and their essence, etc. What analogy? Did Bhagwan give to describe the state when it is like up to sorry? Uh, um, what analogy did Bhagwan give to describe the state when we are self-realized liberation? What is it like? I do recall once he said it is like diving into an ocean of honey. Maybe this is not a very accurate rendering of my understanding, but please. Uh, uh, do clarify what analogies Bhagwan gave to make that state clear to us and comprehensible. There, there can be no adequate analogy for that, because it is not like anything. It, because it is, it, it is beyond all phenomena. So we can clearly understand what that state is only by being that. That is no being ourselves alone is knowing ourselves. So it, it we we need not know beforehand what that state is like because it's not like anything. We simply had to follow the practice that Bhagavan taught us and immerse ourselves more and more in that clarity until that clarity swallows us. Then it will be clear what what that state is. But it will be impossible to, it is anivachaniya, it cannot be expressed in words, it cannot be grasped by thought. We can know it only by being it. So analogies are useful for something, but, but for, for knowing our real nature, what is it like to, to be to to yeah i mean being is one thing that cannot be adequately expressed we all know i am but can you describe i am what is it like to be aware i am it's not like anything i mean that there, there are words that are used like it's it's compared to a light to clarity but even these words fall short that is, these are the closest that can come to it. In Gita, Krishna says it's like a, a thousand suns or something, or I don't know, a thousand or a lakh or whatever. So, crore of suns. But I mean, none of these, none of these can really capture what it is. 
Could you briefly talk about Bhagwan's views on Chef Siddhanta and compare it with Bhagwan's Advaita teachings to, for all of us? I read that Bhagwan himself has asked his devotees to chant Thiru Vachagam uh, by uh, Manika Vachagar uh, when his mother passed away. Um, yeah, that is, when we talk about Shaiva Siddhanta, um, Shaiva Siddhanta is, a, is one of the ancient philosophies of India. It, it, it has gone through various stages of evolution. The, the more modern forms of Shaiva Siddhanta tend to be dualistic. So in that way, they're a bit different to Advaita. Some of the older forms of Shaiva Siddhanta, there were elements of non-duality, but that is the philosophy. Shaiva Siddhanta also takes, a, that is the Shaiva Siddhanta in Tamil Nadu, because it's really only in Tamil Nadu, but Shaiva Siddhanta used to be a philosophy that was spread throughout India, but it virtually it survives only in South India, in, in Tamil Nadu. Um, Kashmir Shaivism is a sort of, uh, is, is a, another form, a sort of a, an offshoot of the older Shaiva Siddhanta. I think the Veera Shaivism of Karnataka is an offshoot of that. But And even what is nowadays called Shaiva Siddhanta is not exactly the same as the original Shaiva Siddhanta. So all these things are constantly changing. But the Shaiva Siddhanta, as it is now um, uh, exists in Tamil Nadu, they take the, um, the, the Tirumarais, that is the um, the, the sacred works of Manika Vasaka and of Devaram, the works of Upper um, Sundara and, Manik, and Jnana Sambandha. These, the works of these four saints are called the Tirumarais, and these are considered as very, very sacred. But these are not expressing any particular philosophy. These are pure, pure, pure devotion. Um, so the, you can... That is where many things in Tiruvaskam, for example, it, it, we can easily see an Advaitic meaning in that. In that. For example, um, uh, Manikavastaka, the first song in Tiruvaskam is uh, uh, called Shiva Puranam, and he begins, uh, Namashivaya Vaha, glory to Namashivaya, uh, Natantal Vaha, the glory to the, uh, to the feet of the Lord. Glory to those feet, but never leave my heart, even for the twinkling of an eye. What is it that never leaves our heart for a twinkling of an eye? It is only that pure awareness I am. So if we view from a Advaitic perspective, these these devotional works are full of Advaita, just like Bhagavan's Aranatya Stutipanchakam is full of Advaita. So yes, Bhagavan had great, great love for these works because of their pure devotion in them. And um, what is devotion? Ultimately, devotion is all about giving oneself to God. Giving oneself to God means surrendering ourselves. When we surrender, what remains? Only God himself. So ultimately, the the, the Advaita is the culminate is, is is where surrender leads, where devotion leads. Is, it ultimately leads to um, so long as we want to remain separate from God, 
our love for God is imperfect. If we truly love God with our whole heart, we, will, we won't even want to have a separate existence. We'll give ourselves wholly to God. So that is what works like Tiruvasakam are all about. It's that, that complete heart-melting devotion. So Bhagavan had the greatest love for, um, for uh, Tiruvasakam and other such works because they, they were such pure expressions of, of, of love. And the same love that we see in Tiruvasakam, we see in an even, even more, uh, well, we can't say, but I mean, Arunachas Dutipanchikam reflects the same love. But in the, if, in, if we understand Arunachas Dutipanchikam clearly, the whole of it is, there's a Dvaitic import in each and every verse. So devo ultimately, devotion is about giving ourselves to God. When we give ourselves to God, what remains? God alone. That is a dwaita. And when we merge in God, we are nothing other than God. That is a dwaita. So all these devotional... So ultimately, though the Shaiva Siddhantins claim these, uh, these works like Tiruvasakam as their own, Advaitins can equally well. I mean, it is, it is these devotional works do not belong to, exclusively to any system of philosophy. They, they can be viewed from the perspective of different systems of philosophy, and each will, will see, see their own philosophy contained within it. I hope that adequately answers that question. And it wasn't only when his mother passed away. But, I mean, it, before, uh, before um, Bhagavan composed Aranachal Stuti Panchakam, these works like uh, Tirvasakam and Devaram, these were always chanted in Bhagavan's presence. And even after Bhagavan composed Aranachal Stuti Panchakam, these used to be chanted. Because everyone knew what love Bhagavan had for these works, because they expressed such pure devotion. But Bhagavan referred not only to these, um, these Shaivite. Uh, works of devotion like Tiruvasagam. He also often used to refer to the uh, Nalairi Divya Prabandham, that's the, the works of the, the, the Alwas, the, the, the Vaishnava saints, because they're also full of devotion, though they tend to be on the surface more dualistic. Bhagavan saw the non-duality underlying, and he often used to point out the, the non-dual implication of, of these um, of the, the sayings of, particularly Namalwa was uh, was one of Bhagavan's favorites. Yeah, the next question is in the path of Sri Ramana, Sri Sadhuam writes, Guru Bhakti is like a wife's chastity towards a husband. Though we may have love and respect towards all sages and saints, past and present, once we have met our Sadguru, 
bondage or liberation, bad or good, hell or heaven, whatever he chooses to give, wherever he chooses to place me, that is my pleasure. And with such surrender, one should uh, remain in one-pointed love, which is the true sign of Guru Bhakti. Would Michael please speak about this? Yes, that is any spiritual, any true spiritual path. To follow any spiritual path, one-pointedness is necessary. So ultimately our aim is to go within. But so long as we are looking outward, we if our mind is going from this, if we're jumping from this guru to that guru to that guru, our mind is scattered. The scattered mind will not be able to go within. Your scattered mind is always going outward. So if we want to have a mind that is fit to turn within, it needs to be one-pointed and it needs to have one-pointed love. So it is natural for us. Um, if When we come to a real guru, our, our, our heart will be stolen by him. So they, it, that is, if we have real Guru Bhakti, if we, if, we, if we have been blessed by him with real Guru Bhakti, the thought of going anywhere else will not even occur to us. It'll be, it'll be second nature. I mean, it'll be, it'll be our very nature to have that one-pointed Guru Bhakti. Those whose, mind, who, whose minds are still drifting from one guru to another, they're still floating on the surface. They haven't gone deep in this path. If we go deep in this path, this is a path going from multiplicity to oneness. Oneness is the ultimate aim. So it is natural for us on the way to hold on to one. So once we're attracted to, of course, we have respect for all other, uh, that is ultimately all gods and all gurus. They're all forms of the one. But so, yes, so long as we, our mind is going outwards, we will be attracted to that, that. We will find that there is one name and form, one teaching that attracts us above all else. And that is our, that is the, teachings of our, that is the, the one who attracts us in such a way, he, he or she is, that name and form is our guru. Ego, as beautifully explained by Bhagwan, is Chit Jada Granthi. So when the body dies, what is left is the Chit. Question, what is the purpose of realizing in this life as the after, um, as after the perishing of the body, what remains is pure awareness. And another question, how can the residual pure awareness after the body perishing carry the prarabdha to the next life? It's confusing. That is, we cannot rise, stand, or flourish as ego without grasping a body as ourself. But it need not be the same body. So just because that is... But, um, the death of the body is just the ending of a dream, but it is not the ending of the dreamer. Ego is the dreamer. So when one dream comes to an end, ego will start dreaming another dream. So it, just because the body ceases doesn't mean that the chit jada, that is ego is not, is neither chit nor jada. It is the not formed by the entanglement of the two. So that not remains. But I mean, when the body dies, the knot still remains and it projects an, another body. So to, to, we shouldn't think of it as just, but there's two things, chit and jada, 
and but when the judge, when the body goes, then chit alone remains. It doesn't work like that. Ego is neither chit nor is it jada. It is chit jada granti. Granti means that not. It is the that that which as as Bhagavan says in verse twenty four of Uludunapdu, jada udal nanenadu. That's in the insentient body does not say I. That does not say I is a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself as I? Because it's insentient. So the body is not aware of itself as I. Satchit udiyadu. Satchit. Satchit means the pure being awareness, what we actually are. Does Udiyadu means it does not rise. So on the one hand, you've got the body which isn't aware of itself as I, aware of anything. You've got satchit, the pure awareness, that doesn't rise. But in between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. This one thing that rises, this is chit-jada-granti. So it is not the body, which is jada, nor is it satchit, which is chit. It is the not formed by the two. It is that which appears between them. So it is neither this nor that. It borrows the properties of both. Um, so this is chichadagranti, bondage, uh, uh, jivan, the jiva, the soul, um, nupame, the subtle body, chichadagranti, uh, um, uh, 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 bandham, jivan, nupame, uh, ahande, uh, ego, ichamsara, this samsara, and manam, mind. So all these are just names for that not but is formed by the entanglement of these two. But of course, chit is never entangled, but from the perspective of ego, there seems to be an entanglement. That entanglement is ego. So ego doesn't go just with the death of the body, because the body is projected by ego. So if one body goes, it projects another body. In order to separate chit from jada, we need to hold on to chit. Chit means satchit, that is our own, uh, our own being, our own fundamental awareness I am. That is what we need to hold on to. To the extent to which we hold on to that, the jada uh, element of ego will drop down because ego, that is the, the we as ego are holding on to the jada uh, adjuncts. The jada adjuncts are not holding on to us. So, to be, if instead of holding on to the adjuncts as we are doing now, if we hold on to our being, uh, the adjuncts will slip off and eventually our own being will remain. So, in order to separate ourselves from these adjuncts, in order to uh, uh, sever this knot, this, the only way is self-attentiveness. Death of the body doesn't bring about the death of the knot. Death of ego Ego, the knot is ego. So death of ego alone is the severance of the knot. I hope that adequately answers that. Next question is, uh, what is the earliest age for someone to start self-inquiry that Bhagwan recommended? How should self-knowledge be shared with children? The earliest day when we are drawn to this path, that is the time to start. There's no such thing as an earliest age. Some people, they may be 
90 or 100 and they're still not ready for this because they, they're not attracted to it. When we're attracted to it, age is not a consideration because age is only for the body. So it has nothing to do with age or any other such thing. As far as introducing children, if when we are ready, we will be drawn to this path. This, this, these teachings will be made available to us and we'll be drawn to them when we are ready. We, though we, are, we may be the parents of children, we can only, those children are independent jivas who come, who are born in this form. So we may be able to, we can try to introduce our children to good things to try and show them a good path in life, but there's no guarantee. I mean, very seldom do children have exactly the same interests as their parents. So just because we're interested in this spiritual path doesn't mean our children will be. That doesn't mean they're bad people. They may be very good people and doing living a good life in their own way. They're just not yet ready for this. If they're ready for this, it doesn't matter what type of parents they have. That is, our parents can be the greatest sinners, but if we are attracted to this path, um so it's got it that is it is ultimately it is well not even ultimately it is the sole responsibility of grace to draw us to this path when we are ready grace knows when we are ready and when we are not ready grace is is doing its work preparing us getting us ready for this so when we come to bhagavan's teachings our concern should not be about how can we uh, introduce this to others, how can we tell others about this? Our concern should be, how can we follow this ourselves? If others come and ask us about this, then we can answer. But we are not, to, we are not here to, um, th that is, those who are ready will be drawn to this path automatically. Those who are not ready, you can give them lectures for hours, but it's not going to have any effect. So we, we are not here to, to propagate Bhagavan's teachings or anything. We among ourselves, because why we're all here um, taking part in this discussion, because we're all, we've all been attracted to Bhagavan. But most people are, are not yet ready for this, then that's fine. I mean, it's a, a grace, just the same grace that is taking care of us, the same grace that has led us to this point in our spiritual journey is leading every other jiva. So it's it's Bhagavan's concern, not our concern. Our concern is to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan by holding on to our own being. There's a question from Elena. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, hello, Michael. Hello. Uh, I just actually uh, wanted to ask. Um, uh, really, uh, uh, we were discussing today this question of uh, attachments, and uh, uh, this is uh, really like a kind of maybe um, some kind of problem that we uh, follow in this path. We uh, don't have <laughs> like clear imagination of the result, right? <laughs> I mean that. If we know that is why pe many people uh, want to have some experiences to experience how it is this pure yes. being, how it feels, right? So, yes. which is of course we understand it is impossible uh, yeah. 
from yeah uh, but um, on the other hand in uh, for example in uladunarpadum uh, in 12th verse bhagavan uh, uh, says uh, that uh, state of pure being it, it is not a void yeah. um and um, also i want to mention the fact that uh, many people, even though they like spiritual people, they are interested in these matters, uh, and uh, uh, those who are interested in Prahava's teachings, they um, they are not satisfied with uh, uh, description with uh, this information that uh, uh, deep sleep is the state where ego is absent, and uh, because it is like from from our normal people, that let's let's put it now roughly like this, that uh, we think that it is we still think that it is dull state, right? So it, yeah. it is not satisfactory uh, for us to know that that so but uh, uh, and we also know that you also mentioned uh, today Bhagavad Gita that uh, Krishna uh, actually uh, uh, Krishna explain to Arjuna uh, that uh, I mean he tried to explain and show uh, what it means uh, God what it means this pure consciousness of your pure being and it is question of many many if we for example uh, read some uh, famous uh, scriptures where uh, like some story, uh, like uh, similar to uh, Krishna and Arjuna story uh, 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 that students ask their uh, teachers uh, about how it, what it is what it is to to be like this they for example arjuna also asked uh, how these people how self-realized people behave what they do what what is their lives are like so i mean that uh, all such question of course appear to us because uh, i mean that uh, it is uh, of course because it, it needs uh, real maturity to to believe believe uh, your guru 100 percent to trust every word that he says if he says you have to do this to realize to to really i mean be happy let's let's say like this then you have to, then then we just have to follow 100 percent because whatever he says he says it for our own good and uh, he gives the most precise uh, instructions to 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 reach this uh, let's say this purpose uh, so uh i just wanted to ask about this uh, uh, uh mentioning uh Pahavan mentioned this in Urdunapadu that this state is not a void it is it is it is uh it is a state where there is no knowledge and there is no ignorance and yeah. which is also interest and plus also by the way i thought that this that uh all these questions also appear because uh, like you also wrote i first i somehow learned from your book and then uh also in Uladunapadu, uh, says we don't know even with what we are dealing in even living because we don't know because we, we actually we don't know what even life means because to know what life means and what is going on in life we have to know first like a meaning of unit right of I am right, and then we understand everything. We are now living like uh, blind kitties. I mean, that without understanding even of what is going on, actually. So, uh, so I mean, all this, all this, somehow, all these thoughts appeared in my mind because, because yes, we need like some confirmation that it's like uh, in Muslims' religion they say that when you go to paradise, you will have this, 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 and this. <laughs> and I mean that for us sometimes it's very. Very interesting to, to know how how it is. Yes. Um, 
that is firstly with regard to verse 12 of Buludunapadu, uh, Bhagavan doesn't say it is devoid of ignorance. He says it is devoid of ignorance and knowledge. That is, not only is it devoid of any knowledge of anything other than ourself, it's devoid of any ignorance of anything other than ourself. Why? Because in that state of pure awareness, there is nothing other than, there's nothing other than ourself for us either to know or to not know. So it is beyond the duality of knowledge and ignorance. He also says that that which knows is not real awareness. That which knows here means that which knows things other than itself, namely ego. And he also says it is um, it shines without another, either for knowing or for causing to know. So there's nothing other than it for it to know. So it means ourself. That is, he says, uh, um, when he says, since it shines, that it is referring to the word tan, which means oneself. So since we ourselves shine, we ourselves means ourselves as we actually are, shine without any other thing, either to know or to cause to know, we ourselves are the, are the real awareness. And that awareness is not a void. Why does he say it's not a void? Because a void means what is empty. It is devoid of knowledge and ignorance of anything other than itself, but it is the fullness of pure awareness. It's the fullness of what actually exists. It, when nothing other than ourself exists, we cannot say ourself is empty because there's nothing other than itself for it to be empty of. We are the fullness of our own being, the fullness of awareness, the fullness of Satchitananda. So there's, there's nothing other than ourself that we could be empty of. So it, that in that sense, Bhagavan says it's a void. But obviously by our mind, we cannot grasp this. We, we, we cannot grasp that state in which there is nothing other than ourself. Um, here he says there's nothing, there's, it's, but we shine, but our real nature shines without a number for knowing. But in, in, um, in verse, uh, verse 31, he said about the state of Vinyani, he's using plural here, but it's, uh, this plural is an honorific plural. So he says, Tanne uh, Alladu, uh, ondrum ariya. They do not know anything other than themselves. In other words, does not know anything other than itself. Who can conceive their state as, it, uh, as like this? So we cannot possibly conceive what is the state of jnana, because so that is the mind always knows other. So the mind cannot conceive of the state in which there is no other. So trying to trying to understand by our mind that which is beyond the mind is futile. So people want to know about that final state. So they ask, start asking, what is the state of the self-realized the self-realized person? But there is no such thing as the self-realized person. The Jivan Mukta, when we talk about the term Jiva Mukta, that means liberated while alive. What people generally understand Jiva Mukta to mean is a person who is who has realized the self even while they're still living. But that person exists only in the view of the ignorant. 
in the view, when we know ourselves as we actually are, there's nothing other than ourselves to know. So there's no person, there's no world, there's nothing. There's just the pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love that we actually are. So this cannot possibly be grasped by our mind. All we need, all if we want to grasp it, we what we are seeking to know is nothing other than ourselves. So we need to grasp ourselves. The more we grasp ourselves, the more we thereby sink into ourselves. Into ourselves means into our into our being, into that fundamental awareness I am. And eventually we will be swallowed by that. So seeking to know that by any means other than looking within is futile. So it cannot be grasped by the mind. And regarding what you say about um, about uh, um, sleep, um, during our recent conversation, that is that um, you and uh, Yussi organized with um, Swami Sabapriyananda, uh, one of the questions was asked about the state of sleep. And I explained there, what I said was, there in Advaita, there are many different levels of explanation because not everyone who is trying to follow this path or interested in following this path has the same is at the same level of maturity. So different types of explanations are given to suit people at different levels of spiritual development. So even within Advaita, there are so many, so many explanations that are given, but are later have to be discarded as unsatisfactory. So what I said is there are many different explanations given about sleep. Generally, what is said in Advaitic text is that um, they the ignorance remains there in the form of vasanas, and it's a state of darkness, all this. But that is not what... And Bhagavan sometimes used to also speak from that perspective when he was talking to people who couldn't grasp more than that. But what we understand from Bhagavan's pure teachings, for example, he says in, in the first sentence of uh, Nana, when he, he, he... In the final clause, he says... Um, Manamatra Nidrail Tansabhavaman Manamatra Nidrail Dinamanu Babikam Tansabhavamana Achukate Adeya Tanne Tan Aridal Vendam. What that means is um, in order to experience that happiness, which is one's own real nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind, manamatra nidrail, he clearly says there, but uh, sleep is devoid of mind. Um, it is necessary for oneself to know oneself. So there he clearly says sleep is devoid of mind. If it's devoid of mind, it has to be devoid of everything else, because there what he means by mind is ego, because what the mind essentially is, is ego. So only a state devoid of ego is a state truly devoid of mind. If anyone has any doubt about whether that's what Bhagavan actually meant, in verse um, 21 of Upadesha Undia, he says, um, uh, uh, Nanenum sopporul, nam, 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 nam,
That means um, that he's referring to what what he was talking about in the previous verse, which is that that infinite whole that appears as I am I, that is always the true import of the word I because of the absence of our non-existence, in, even in sleep, which is devoid of I. When he says sleep is devoid of I, what he means by devoid of I is devoid of ego. Because, because we exist there. So I exist there without I. That means what we actually are exists without ego. So he very, very clearly says uh, sleep is a state devoid of ego. And he also says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Therefore, so it, it, since ego doesn't exist in sleep, everything doesn't exist in sleep. So the idea that ignorance remains in sleep or that the karana sarira remains in sleep in the form of vasanas or anything, these are all explanations as he says in a number in a different context, it's an explanation given to the questions of others. That is a term he uses in Uludunapadu when he's talking about this um the idea, but for Vanyani, Agamya and Sanchita come to an end, but Prarabdha remains. He says that is an answer given to the questions of others. What he means by others is those who are not yet ready to understand deeper truths. So um, there are many things, many explanations are given in Advaita, but are, are but are to suit people of less mature state of mind. Uh, but what Bhagavan taught us about sleep is, but sleep is a state of devoid of ego, and in the absence of ego, it's everything else is absent. So what remains in sleep is just pure awareness. And he said that in, in so many places, in Guru Vajrakukavai, there's a verse in which he says, when that ignorance that gives rise to waking and dream is removed, then the, the state of sleep, which was previously described as a state of, um, of, of, uh, of, it was described as a sheath, as a current, as an ananda mycosia, would be found to be the beginningless, endless, pure awareness, something to that effect. So, um, and in Maharshi's gospel, he's there's a portion where it's recorded, and I think this is also probably in talks also, where he it's recorded that he said, "Sleep is not ignorance. It is there's no ignorance in sleep. Sleep is a state of pure uh, awareness." There's pure ignorance in waking and dream, but sleep is a state of pure awareness. So he's very, very clear that in sleep there's nothing other than our own being, which is pure awareness. But there were people who commented on that video uh, who said, um, no, this isn't right because Godapada has said such and such in Mandukya Karika. Yes, Godapada said that, but there's so many different things. If you if you go into it, you can even find contradictions between things that Shankara said and things that Godapada said, because Godapada had to dilute things to a certain extent. Shankara had to dilute things even more because he was trying to convince more people. The more you want to convince others who are not ready to come to this path, the more you have to dilute things. So if you want to look for contradictions, there are contradictions, but 
all all that Gotapada taught, all that Shankara taught, had a purpose. It was suited to people at particular levels of understanding. But what Bhagavan has taught us, this is the the ultimate truth. But in sleep, there is nothing other than our own being. This may not satisfy most people, but this is the most useful and practical teaching. If we want to, if we, if rather than just discussing these things, what is said in this Upanishad, what is said in that Upanishad, why Godapada said like this, why Shankara said like this, why someone else explained it like this. If if we want to, if if our aim is to study philosophy. There's endless philosophy for us to study. We can spend many, many lifetimes studying philosophy. But if we want to understand what is the aim of all philosophy, the ultimate aim of all philosophy is to know ourselves. And to know ourselves, the teachings that Bhagavan has given us are the most useful, the most practical teachings. So um, there will always be people who aren't satisfied. When we explain what Bhagavan said, there will always be people who aren't satisfied. You say, no, 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 but it said here, it said like this, here it said like that, so this cannot be true. Of course, Ramana Maharshi, because he's in Yani, he must be say, but Michael is misinterpreting. Someone had, well, someone didn't actually put in both words, but they say, I say, but your inter but Michael's interpretation is wrong, not but Ramana Maharshi's interpretation is wrong, because Ramana Maharshi must be right. Someone wrote such a comment. I think that was on the live stream video but later got removed. So um, another comment that people have been making, another thing that several people have been saying, is that I am is not the reality. I am is ego. Because they don't know what Bhagavan's teaching is. What does I am mean? I am means I exist. So if you say I am is ignorance, or I am is ego, you're saying your existence is ego. That makes no sense at all. I am is Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. So the, the, I am is not ego. Ego is that I am is pure awareness. When that pure awareness is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this or I am that, I am this body, that is ego. So the I am on its own, in its pure condition, that is Brahman. That is what we actually are. That's our real nature. When it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts, that is ego. But people who've just read lots and lots of books, they don't understand these things. They don't, they, because they, they're still floating on the level of ideas instead of their mind is not penetrating in to understand uh, why Bhagavan says that I am alone is real. Why Bhagavan says that I am is Brahman. Why Bhagavan said the ultimate name of God is I am alone. And what what we actually are is I am I. We are nothing other than I. Why he says that, these people who've read lots and lots of books and whose minds are full of so many other ideas, they won't be able to understand the practical implication of what Bhagavan is saying. What Bhagavan teaches us is the most practical, the most useful teachings for practice. What are said in other books, some of them are very useful, but many of them are diluted teachings given to satisfy those who are others, as Bhagavan said, given to satisfy the questions of others, those who are not yet ready to put this. Advaita is not just a nice philosophy. Advaita is all about practice, and Bhagavan has made that abundantly clear. So the teachings Bhagavan has given us are the most practical teachings.
If we really want to, to put this into practice, if we want to put Advaita into practice, the teachings given by Bhagavan are the most practical. And how do we put Advaita into practice? Advaita means not to. So any state in which there are two, any meditation in which there's a subject meditating on an object, that is duality. But the only non-dual practice is self-attentiveness, because in self-attentiveness there's only one. The one who is attending is the one who is attended to. And the attention itself is nothing other than that. So that is the state of oneness. That is the state of non-duality. So what Bhagavan has taught us, this alone is the Advaita, is the correct practice of Advaita. But yes. it, won't, it won't satisfy all people. And that's fine. We, we've got no argument. If they want to say we're wrong, let them say we're wrong. It's not a problem. But um, we are following Bhagavan. We are not following those who... who um, whose minds are full of so many ideas that they picked up from this book and that book and haven't really half-digested ideas that they picked up along the way. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. You even uh, answered, um, I mean, that uh, quite explicitly. I mean, that uh, my idea, of course, just was to... to uh, to ask about a little bit like more about about this uh, final state like you say but yeah, I mean, but, but, was... that if you want to know that final state know yourself without yeah. knowing yourself how can you know the final state of knowing yourself so it, it's futile all these uh, to ask about any anything about that is Bhagavan has clearly told us what is the goal to know ourselves and how to know ourselves to investigate ourselves it's so so simple Exactly, exactly. And we have to also understand that, uh, I mean, where is Pahavan, where, where are we? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That it, is a, it, is a, it is a much work to do, I mean, that, uh, but, but yes, I mean, that uh, there should be uh, trust to, to Guru, complete 100%. It is a very important thing, I, I think. And Absolutely. it just, uh, yes, and this, uh, that it is, thank you so much, actually, it is only uh, thank to Yusi that he organized. I was just a little bit like helping, and thank you so much for participating. It was just a uh, uh, bless for us also. It's thank, all thanks to you and Swamiji. And, uh, uh, all I, thanks uh, to Bhagavan. <laughs> yes, all thanks to Bhagavan. But yes, but I mean that uh, sometimes uh, I also understand that we have so many, uh, so many attachments, and we have so many feelings, and mm. these feelings are so strong, and and when we just, uh, uh, I mean, that we even when we even just imagine that uh, uh, this final state is just like uh, mm, uh, like uh, deep sleep, which we cannot even evaluate uh, normally, because from our uh, present state, how we can know what at all was in this, especially when we uh, hear from Kahavan. I mean, but it, it, to me, it's it's a little bit a little bit like a kind of a shock when you uh, all of a sudden uh, being a person right being being so much involved in this world taking it so close whatever is going on in this world and uh, and your personal life and so on and uh, all of a sudden you uh, hear from from absolutely amazing being that uh, i mean from kahavan that the deep sleep is this state of happiness right mm -hmm. and i i understand that state it is yes it is state of happiness because there is no such horrible problems there is no world and we and like i said also mentioned your own words and your book also uh, i first i learned it from there that we have to first understand what we are to understand 
all the rest, yes. world mm -hmm. and life and so on. Because yeah, yeah. yeah, so it is very important thing to understand this because otherwise, otherwise we will be always having these horrible, horrible uh, experiences. I mean, like feelings and uh, yeah. just our attitude uh, um, and we our perception of life will be like very. It's like it is called only one word: suffering, suffering. So it's, yes. When we do not know the reality of ourselves, how can we know the reality of anything else? So first we should seek to know what we ourselves actually are. And then if there's anything remaining to be known, then we can know it. But according to Bhagavan, when we know ourselves, there's nothing else for us to know. Yes, and uh, to, like, it is very important also to practice because, like you say, and I agree a million percent that uh, it is all matter of practice. Everything Absolutely. is very practical in this teaching. So, I mean, that if Kahaman says that you have to practice, it, 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 it purifies your mind to understand things better. Of course, I, I'm like everybody else. I mean, that, uh, like, I mean, that uh, to me, it's just uh, something that I, I, I understood, but <laughs> it's far away from. I mean, from uh, some perfection, but I mean, we all fall short as far as practice is concerned, but we have to understand that practice is absolutely essential. Yes, and it is practical, practical. I, be, I believe yeah. it. It is yeah. really practical. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, thank you so much again, Michael. Right. right. There was uh, one question, which is, um, it's a question about uh, how does a jnani respond to world events which may require expressions of empathy and other emotions. And it's in the context of a criticism uh, by Paul Brunton, apparently, uh, in which he criticized Bhagwan for not showing enough empathy. And, <laughs> uh, and it's uh, and uh, sort of uh, and uh, respond to this criticism and how should a jnani <laughs> respond to events in the world which may require empathy? Well, firstly, the jnani is not a person. So the jnani, the jnani is, as Bhagavan said, jnana me jnani, that is jnana alone is the jnani, and jnana means pure awareness. However, we see the jnani as a person. And if there's any person in this world who is the very embodiment of empathy, the very embodiment of compassion, it is Bhagavan. No, there's nobody who is more compassionate than Bhagavan. When his thigh brushed against a hornet's nest, a, a bush that contained a hornet's nest, he didn't know there was a hornet's nest there. His, he, he just, his thigh happened to brush against that nest and disturb the hornet. He stood there and allowed the hornets to sting his thigh. And he stood so motionless, they didn't sting any other part of his body, but they stung that thigh mercilessly. And hornets are a big type of uh, wasp. They've got big stings. Those stings, so many of those uh, got uh, embedded in his leg and his legs sw uh, got swollen. And he, but with great difficulty, he, um, he, limped back to the Burupatri cave. Um, it was quite a distance because he was on the north side of the hill. He had to come back to Burupatri cave. And then the devotees applied um, various oils and soothing things. And after a few days, when the swelling started to subside with pliers, they began to remove one by one these stings. And they were like small uh, nails that were embedded in his flesh. So he 
he had so much compassion for so much empathy for those uh, hornets. He understood how how they felt because they they have been disturbed. So he let them think. He said, "This leg has done a wrong, so let this leg suffer the consequences." So nobody can accuse Bhagavan of lacking empathy. Bhagavan is the very embodiment of empathy. But he's Karana Murti. He's the very embodiment of of compassion of uh, love. So Paul Brunton simply doesn't know what he's talking about. Because Paul Brunton, like so many people, he's seeing Bhagavan through the limited uh, perspective of his little mind. And he thinks Bhagavan should be like this, Bhagavan shouldn't be like that. And he passes judgment. Who were we to judge Bhagavan? We may not always understand all of Bhagavan's actions. Some of the things, sometimes Bhagavan seemed to not respond at all to certain situations when we would expect him to respond. And he responds to other situations. We can't understand why. Probably Paul Brunton thought the Bhagavan uh, lacked empathy because Paul Brunton fell out with the ashram management about something. So he probably felt Bhagavan should, he probably felt I am right, they are wrong. So Bhagavan should side with me. That's probably where his idea comes from. But who is to say who is right and who is wrong? Bhagavan, so many wrongs were happening around Bhagavan, he appeared indifferent to them. Sometimes he would interfere, sometimes he wouldn't. So who are we to judge? Bhagavan knows what is to happen will happen, what is not to happen will not happen. So Bhagavan is at the same time indifferent to all these things, and at the same time he's the embodiment of compassion. So whatever, however Bhagavan responds to any situation, that is the best way for all concerned. 